Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with the first Polish conductor to appear on this podcast. After studying in Warsaw and Vienna, she went on to be both a Tacky Allsop Conducting Fellow and a Dudamel Fellow, and last year started as the Music Director of Opera Nationale de Lorraine in France. It is a very great pleasure to welcome Marta Gadolinska. Marta, it's wonderful to see you and to speak with you and to meet you. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you very much for having me. Where are you at the moment? I'm in Vienna at home. I just finished my season and sort of catching up on life a little bit. Well, I can think of worse places to live. I absolutely (laughs) love Vienna. Uh, What a joy. Um, I'm going to go right back and find out about your earliest musical experiences. You were born in Poland. Um... And I read from your biography that the flute and the piano, as well as running and athletics and acrobatics, appear early on as your earliest musical instrument. So which was first? And did you come from a musical family? Um, I don't come from a family of professional musicians, but I come from a musical family in terms of uh, being full of people that love music and uh, have made music uh, in amateur uh, way. Mm. On the side of my mom, a little bit more professional. They, my mom and her sister, they uh, had some. They both studied piano and they sang in choirs. And they are, uh, they were always very fascinated by classical music. On the side of my father, it's just you know general appreciation for for the art. Mm. And so for me, the first instrument was uh, piano. In the primary music school, I kind of, uh, at least my parents tell me that I, I wanted to play the flute from the beginning, which I don't even recall, but <laughs> I started with piano. Yeah. And what age was that? Uh, were, you, uh, were you one of these people who wanted to do it sort of three, four years old? Or were you a little bit later like me? I didn't start until I was nine. I, in between. Yeah. I started at, at the age of six, basically when starting primary schools, I was starting a music music school because Poland has this very well codified system of, mm. of music school, schools that go in parallel with your general education. So um, I went through that. And the idea to, to make music came to my parents sort of uh, because of my vivid reactions to music from a very early age it was sort of you know just dancing singing whenever I could but it's not like I had a dream of a specific instrument very early on it was rather you know let's do something with it and let's see what the teachers come up with now your biography says it was singing in a choir that inspired you to delve into the world of conducting um what was it you were singing and why were you inspired by that experience? Um, well, it was the choir of the secondary music school. So I was like an early teenager and uh, we were doing all sorts of, you know, traditional things that you do in the choir. So what was it that that was one of the bigger experiences for me at the time was uh, Vivaldi's Gloria. I mm. adored it. And um, we had a very inspiring uh, choir conductor. She really was the, the way that she would bring together all those teenagers and motivate us and really make us work and see the results of, of harder work and discipline was, was fantastic. And I was really fascinated by the choreographical part of it. It was so yes. beautiful to watch her. <laughs> and that was, that was the first time when I thought, when I had moments, you know, I think for many people it starts, you, you are in an ensemble and things, I wish I could influence what's happening here, you know, oh. just be on the other side and and think that you could bring something. Um, yeah, so it was it was her. It was that teacher. What's interesting about that is that you are a lot younger than I, but I've spoken to people around my age and older who remember their first people who inspired them in youth music groups were female conductors. The first people who really conducted me... Uh were Angela and Helen at Medway Music Centre. But then at the time, so that, you know, I, I was playing, this is the early 1980s, there were no female conductors at all. Whereas, you know, when you were doing, uh, you were singing in your choir, already by then people like Marion Allsop were around, Antonio yes. de la Martinez, the glass ceiling was at least being cracked, if not smashed. But yeah. it, it was at least being pushed upon hard. Um, 
but it, it you know it does feel amazing that these people who can inspire us you know nobody batted an eyelid about the fact that they were female conductors when i was a kid nobody did but there just weren't any you know and this is going to come yeah. up later when we talk about marion and and yeah. the tacky Olsop, um foundation but yeah i mean I'm, I'm assuming there were others around that time as well yeah and i mean i think uh, the way that i saw it back then it was normal for women to be choir conductors Mm. It wasn't normal for them to be orchestra conductors, even though already then in Poland there was this uh, this one conductor, Agnieszka Duczmal. She founded her own string orchestra, and she it was it, it still exists. Um, she still wor- is, is is working with them. It's really high level chamber orchestra, and uh, she was seen as this you know sort of iron woman of <laughs> female orchestra conducting. Um, very very respected. So. There was already this little idea that it's possible because mm. there was somebody else out there doing it. Mm. And you went on to study conducting at the Frederick Chopin Music at University of Warsaw and yes. the University of Music and Performing Arts in Vienna. Who was your teacher um, in conducting in bo- and at both of those places? Mm, in Warsaw, my first teacher was Shimon Cavalla. Uh, he's a he's a local conductor, and the, I would I spent. Two, three years, the third year that I was officially studying in Warsaw, I did as an exchange student in Vienna already. And that time was really good for me because it was relatively stressless. (laughs) It was, which is uh, very unusual for conducting studies, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I had the time to sort of look around the repertoire, explore a little bit, experiment a little bit and sort of feel slightly comfortable with, with this uh, in this whole situation. And then I, I, when I went to Vienna, I studied with uh, Mark Stringer and his assistant, Yuji Uasa. And that's, that's a very different evi- environment, of course, yeah, at, yeah. <laughs> at the Music University in Vienna with yes. you know, high competition and, and a lot of pressure. But so uh, yeah. In, in Warsaw, your teacher there, I mean, I've asked this question many times, and I use the generalized point. Was he a musin where, where everything was stick technique and you know less about the score and study, or was he more of a Swarovski, which was all about the score and about 10 minutes period about stick technique, or was he somewhere in the middle? What was his approach with you on, on teaching you conducting? It was more musin, definitely. Mm. Yeah, mm. it was it was very technical and sort of in terms of repertoire, uh, there were things that you do. You take mm. a piece and you do it this way, period. Right. You don't really mess around with how things are done. And here is in two, here is in four, da 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 da, da. And um, yeah, and that was completely different in Vienna. Yeah. That was turned, turned around. And that's where proper score study started and context and digging and experimenting and argumenting mm. for hours about you know <laughs> one bar pickup and yeah mm, yeah well um listeners may well like to know and maybe you would like to know as well that coming in the future will be my chat with mark stringer um which is very very long because as you know mark loves to talk about conducting uh <laughs> and all facets of it uh and so when i get around to it i will edit it but you know it's interesting that you know I don't know whether Mark does it on purpose, but he's also, you know, he is the successor, maybe two or three down the line, to Swarovski. Uh, And so there is that, still that feeling of score study is more important than than, hands and arms. Yeah, Vienna Vienna kind of has it in a sense, although there was this division in two classes. Now it's three, it changes a little bit. The the university is changing. I just had a chat with with one of the students. But... um, you know, tradition and being aware of what came before is definitely a big part. Mm. And I gotta say that I, I, I loved my time at the university here for this reason. It yeah. really opened my eyes to how, how fascinating it can be mm. just to study, to study the score and how much you can get out of it. And, you know, going from detail to, to, to synthesis of everything and back, it's, it's great fun. Conducting or teaching of conducting, you know, there are so many different ways people do it. 
Whereas, you know, I think if you're an instrumentalist, you can get away with having less teachers and less mentors. You know, you can invest in a school of study if you're a pianist or, in my case, as a violinist, I had the same teacher for four years and at the occasional masterclass where I might pick something up musically or at a little technical point. With conducting, there are so many different angles. And, and you know, it, it says, again, going back to your biography, you've had masterclasses or workshops with Bernard Heiting, Peter Ertversch, Simone Young, Georgie Kurtag, I was probably pronounced that wrong, and Marin Olsop. You know, we're going to come to Marin very soon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, you, when you're in these situations, how much of the time are you relying on your, found? let's call it foundation year in Warsaw, and then the years, a uh, couple of years with, with Mark Stringer in, in Vienna? How much are you relying on that first and foremost, and then adding on layers of stuff on top with the other people in masterclasses and workshops? That's an interesting, interesting question. I think I have to say that till today, I am... When I conduct, I'm quite aware that I'm relying on the very first basis of the very yeah. first lessons that I had with the choir conductor. Yeah. Because I got from her the connection between your breath and your gesture and yeah. your intention and your gesture and the emotion and the, uh, the involvement of your face in conducting mm. and your sort of whole body plus basic of like a sort of clear technique, which of course changed in when I, when I switched to or- conducting orchestras. Mm. Um, and in all of these teachers in master classes, of course, are very different, and they they have a, a little bit of a different purpose. So, uh, I think with most of them, them the the teaching was more about music specifically and the piece mm. and interpretation rather than technique. Mm. With the exception of Peter Rutfusch, where since it's contemporary music, it also requires a little bit of a different different approach, and that that got technical again, but mm. never forgetting the musical aspect. So I. Mm. That's a fantastic school as well. Yeah, Kwame Ryan talked about working with Peter Erdvers because he ended up becoming basically a contemporary music expert at the beginning of his career, which was a shock to him. But that was partly through, you know, master classes and studying with Erdvers. I'm Before we get into your career, which is, you know, wonderful, and me asking you certain things about guesting, about opera, competitions, I'm going to stay with teaching because... The next big thing, I suppose, for you teaching-wise was the two years you were Associate Fellow of the Taki Allsop Conducting Fellowship. Yeah, I've interviewed Marin on here. I've interviewed Chloe Sertestead. I've interviewed, I think, two or three now who've been through her fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always ask these the questions, you know, wh- what did you take away from those two years of being basically at the end of a phone from Marin, whenever you wanted to be, but also... The, the sort of female-specific things she talks about. I've watched videos about you know, how she teaches um, teaches you in, in the fellowship. What sort of things would, do you remember specifically thinking, oh, my God, that's a complete 180-degree flip on how I thought I should do it? Um, I think, we, well, first of all, with Marin, what's, what's amazing is that it wasn't just the two years that I, that I could reach out to her whenever. It's still like that. Yeah. And that's just such a privilege you know to to have her as a as a mentor and in a sense as a friend she's she's just fantastic and um for me the the most important thing at first especially was seeing her um not only in rehearsal but all around how she interacts with everybody around how she prepares the rehearsal how she deals with um you know people backstage Mm. uh, how efficient she is and that was always a little bit of a mystery for me since I don't come from a musical family. And, you know, you learn in school how to conduct, more or less how to rehearse, but much less how to manage your career and how to manage the people around you. So that was was a fantastic fantastic experience to see her. Then I, I... I remember two sentences that she that she said to me, which actually came to me recently. Mm. Be careful, be careful what you wish for and don't be afraid to say no Mm. to Mm. things. And that's that is so important and difficult at the same time to practice. But it's very good to especially, you know, don't be afraid to say no. It's so nice to hear from someone who's so accomplished, who's been through so much and knows the industry so well instead of this constant sort of pushing you forward, just do more, do more, go for it. Uh, if you're young, you can do anything. Rather, pace yourself, be smart. Mm-hmm. And just don't do things just because you're, it seems like they they are attractive, but do things that are right for you. Mm. Well, I mean, those sentences 
you know, I asked you about if there are any female specific things you remember, but those sentences apply to us all. I said no to something fairly recently because I thought, you know, on the face of it, it was incredibly attractive. It would have been my first time doing a certain, I'm not, I can't really mention what it was, but you know, I sit here now thinking, actually, I'm really glad I said no, because the pressure would have been just immense in the time frame available. And it was right to say no. You know, you always yeah. think I've got to do it. I've got to be, do my first one of this. I've got to do my first one of that. And if it's not right for you, don't do it. You know, there, there'll be other opportunities. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not, you, it, can, you can do it later. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Um, About the female specific things. because. Yeah. I- it's true that I sort of bypassed the question. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, in a sense, this topic of you know being a female in a in the male industry has been present since the very idea of uh, of conducting mm. orchestra conducting for me. So I've thought about it a lot. Yeah. So in a sense, I I had. Uh, twisted it and turned it in my in my head my, my head so many times that I had a lot of things sort of figured out on how I want to appro- approach it in those terms. Yes, many others not, but the the question of being a woman in this position was somehow I knew how to how to deal with it more or less. Um, the one thing that that uh, Marin says that's that's very right. It's like don't be girly on the podium. Mm. Mm. It's a it's a fine line between being girly and trying to look masculine. You just have to be yourself and mm. uh, have to be okay with who you are and how you are when in in contact with people, mm. and be true. Again, it's it's the same thing. Just be have a have a self confidence and know who you are as a musician, and that's it. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, again, you know, other than the don't be girly bit, but you know, being yourself is something that's come up time and time and time again, whether we've been talking about score preparation or just being yourself on the podium, you know, virtually every episode at some point, somebody said it. And I think, you know, that's so true. Um, I'm going to stick with teaching one more time, Uh, but it's a different sort of teaching because, you know, you spent a year as a Dudamel fellow with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, but you also spent two years uh, concurrently as conductor in association with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, an orchestra I've conducted a lot and love um, this is teaching now from players. This is TQs. This is going on a bus to Exeter and back. This oh, is, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've been there. You've done that. You know, yep. this is, this is a different sort of teaching. Was that, I mean, I know the benefits of it, but how, how much did you get out of those two experiences being closer to an orchestra and its players? Well, the, the BSO experience, uh, was absolutely, absolutely life-changing. That's where I think I became a conductor because I, what I loved about it from the beginning is that it's the musicians that choose the young conductor in association. So Mm. I knew that I am welcomed and they trusted me and they wanted to work with me. So I had suddenly uh, this amazing group of musicians that are just it's a fantastic level and completely different from from my my usual usual experiences before that trusted me to experiment and try things and were extremely supportive and helpful um I'll, and then at the same time my first year my first season i i had two opportunities of jumping in which is extremely lucky that mm. barely ever happens and barely ever happens so so soon and even though, of course, it's it's a it was a very stressful experience, but having an orchestra already where the relationship already was based on trust and and mutual respect, they just made it very easy for me, and and that's how I could be successful in those situations. So, and of course, one one thing is that I had a lot of podium time with them, but at the same time, in between, I was watching experienced conductors and seeing the reactions, seeing what works, what doesn't, how do how does how do the rehearsals. Uh, work hear a lot how does it sound in all of these various different halls that that the bso plays so learning about acoustics and how to adjust uh, to them it was you know the best school and i i really think that that's that has it's invaluable how 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 important it was for for my my development uh, the other thing being of course is that coming from poland from vienna from you know middle europe rehearsal time is a lot shorter over here you know you're going to see 
how an orchestra puts something together on half a third of the amount of time uh, yeah. and as you said either you've got to do it or you're going to be watching people who are used to doing it um yeah. you know that i'm sure was a big learning curve yeah that and that was fascinating because i had to like i was used to over preparing my rehearsals because i had to do it in vienna because of the language because when i first yes. started working here my German was not very good, so, so I was literally Googling and translating sentences <laughs> that I wanted to say. And anyway, I would say some silly stuff and, and I had, you know, a lot of laughs coming from the orchestras, but I was used to having to work a little bit more ahead because, mm. because of the language I couldn't improvise. Um, and then for BSO, I, it was about time management, about knowing exactly how long each movement takes, how much mm. time am I going to take to rehearse down to, you know, three minutes, five minutes, because also in my uh, my responsibilities responsibilities were all of these sort of pops concerts yes yes, yes. smooth classics <laughs> yeah. and and all that stuff where it was just you know 10 different bits that had to be rehearsed in one three-hour rehearsal and um yeah so that was really great and that <laughs> you know I, I developed a system on how to manage that and, and feel secure and not waste any time I'm listeners I'm nodding and grinning because you know, it's not part, it's not come up for a, a while because of the people I've interviewed but you know Marta and I know what it's like to be have to conduct 12 pieces of popular repertoire in, on a three-hour rehearsal, which includes a 20-minute break, and some orchestras yes. are, are better at coming back after 20 minutes than others, and, you know, which, so that's often stretched to 25, so your three hours goes down to two hours, 35 minutes to, yep. get, to get basically 90 to 100 minutes of music rehearsed. You know, that's yeah. what it's like. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, yeah. And you, you, know, you have to learn to trust that you know, if uh, if the concert finishes with Star Wars, that you don't need to play all of Star Wars because they've probably pl all played Star Wars upwards of 50 times in their career. So, yes. you know, start <laughs> it, do the tempo change in the middle and do the end, you know, yeah. whatever. And that's just what it's like, isn't it? It's it, yeah. uh, But there's probably something in there that they haven't played for four or five years that's going to trip you up. It could be something like the Barbara Adagio for strings. You just end up <laughs> conducting for 35 minutes of the two hours, 35 you've got, and you've still got 11 pieces to go. It's just, yes. yeah. <laughs> it's like that but it's yeah. interesting also that you're mentioning trust yeah. this is something that that i learned very much with with the bso the the thing of knowing that for example on the day of the concert if there's a dress rehearsal they will not play out right. their hearts out and things will be uh, more or less okay more or less together yeah. but the concert will be an entirely different world because they are you know they are save, saving their energies and that's a, actually a sign of real professional yeah so um and now it's also helping me in, in my work in with my orchestra in france who I'm, I'm developing from a different level yeah and that's what i'm also telling them look don't it's not a question of life or death when we are playing the dress rehearsal don't you know brass players you can save a little bit it's fine i know you can play mm. it's okay nothing to prove here no exactly right and you know sometimes you can be in one of those dress rehearsals or one of those three-hour rehearsal and concert things a player can play a wrong note. And if you've got enough of a relationship and trust with them, you can look at them in their eyes and they'll nod back at you going, yeah, I know, I played a wrong note. As if, and therefore it doesn't yeah. need rehearsing. You know, the, yeah. it's just done with a look. You know, you could do it with Ed, the first oberman when BSO yeah. so look at him, he'd let you just look, roll his eyes as if, see, so yeah, I know. You know, yeah. and then it's done. <laughs> it, nothing needs to be said. Whereas, you exactly. know, other conductors might stop and go, excuse me, do you don't know that's an F sharp and not an F natural? Yeah. You know, uh, and, and that's 30 seconds <laughs> to a minute wasted where you don't need to do it. Um, precious time. It is precious time, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Before we get out into your career, because I wanted to ask you certain things about guest conducting and then obviously go to, you just mentioned it, your job in France. Competitions. Uh, at your age, there's something that, may, did you feel you needed to do? I mean, you've had some some successes in, the, in competitions. Uh, how did you find them? Were they good, bad, uh, <laughs> unnecessary, well, evil? You know, how did you view them? Uh, well, I would choose unnecessary evil yeah. out of the three options. Um, it all depends on the on the on the specific competition and how it's yes. organized. And yeah. I felt like after when I when I was done with my studies, I felt like I have to do absolutely everything because I saw no way ahead of me. Like I had no idea what to do. I felt, yeah. it felt like I have no contacts, nobody pushing me forward. 
And so I thought, yeah, I have to do all the possible applications, competitions and stuff um, without taking too much time and considering which ones look more serious and which ones look less serious. So I learned that on the go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you find yourself sometimes in situations where you have, uh, you know, 350 candidates and the first round consists of five minutes conducting Le Sacre du Printemps with two pianos. Yeah, yeah. And, and, there's, and the jury sits there for nine hours a day and, <laughs> and they're thinking like... <laughs> And at the end, you have, you have, you know, all those, I don't know, 50, 100 conductors that are waiting for a feedback. And the jurors don't even remember if you were there or not, because it's impossible. Uh, it's absolutely physically impossible to, to process this amount of people. Yes. But of course, there is an entrance fee that you're paying. And then you paid for the flight and you paid for the for the hotel and you're staying in the city and you're you know, definitely contributing to the uh, to the touristic uh, yeah. development of the place. But uh, that has not much to do with your career, really. No. Or not much to do with the proper assessment of your conducting. So as long as you can detach yourself and see that for what it is and say, okay, at least I had a deadline to learn some repertoire, mm. then it's it's fine. So that's true. Yeah, and I had one very good experience, the Hong Kong competition, the last one that I did. I'm not sure if if there are more editions of it. It was the first edition that they were doing, and it was spotless it was yeah. so fantastic or fantastically organized only 12 people invited um a lot of expenses were covered because the group of us was so small um very transparent absolutely no possibility of contacting contacting the jury that we were completely separated but yeah. after everything was done the concert of the of the winners was done we had a separate lunch organized with all the jurors to talk get feedback get contacts, oh, start that's networking. Wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. But one of the jurors was uh, Gaëtan Le Divelec, who was one of the directors of Asconas Holt at the mm. time. So I got to talk to him and that's how I sort of got on the radar. radar. And, you know, a couple of months later, the BSO, they're jumping in and so on. Uh, and a couple of uh, more concerts where, where they saw me, I started working with them. Yeah. But it didn't come out of nothing and it was clear even though I was I was just in the semi-final of the of this competition and I had my sort of worst um anecdotal horrible experience of jet lag and oversleeping for, oh, for the semi-final. <laughs> oops. Was, yeah, oops. It was really, really bad. Um so but anyway, uh, yeah, it was it was still very positive and yeah. and and you know everybody I, I, felt fair. I, I mean, I speak to young conductors who I teach or I give mentorship to through my Patreon page. And, you know, we've discussed, you know, should I apply for this competition? Should I apply for that competition? And the ones where, as you said, there's 250 in the first round that get whittled down to 75 that you just think, well, you could be flying halfway around the world. Okay, yeah, contributing to the local economy. But, and you're going to get what feedback after your five minutes of yeah. Le, Le Sacre with two pianos? <laughs> you know, nothing. You know, wait for wait to apply for one that's you know at least if the first round's thirty two or the first round's you know yeah. whatever forty eight whatever yeah. it is where you've got a chance to go and speak to a jury member after you're knocked out you know you mustn't ever think oh, I'm going to go and win that you know you yeah. you know if you think I'm going to get knocked out and can I get some feedback well then that you know that's perfect it's ideal and that's as you said yeah. where you network and where you can meet people from agencies and um, yeah yeah exactly. So, you know, around this time, you're guest conducting and you're, you know, at the stage of your career as you are now, you're happily, well, and, and until we get to France and, and also Barcelona, and that, that's a separate question coming up in a minute, but you're happily accepting brand new orchestras. There's probably more brand new orchestras in your diary ahead of you than there are old friends. So what strategies yes. do you have for, you know, a new week, a new orchestra, wherever it could be, Finland, it could be in Spain, it could be in the US, whatever. What strategies do you have mentally to get you in the right frame of mind so that when you put that first downbeat down, and as we know, we don't know what's going to come back and when and how, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, we just don't, um, you know, what, yeah. to be in, a, in the best place possible, what what ideas do you have and thoughts? Um, well, the... I think it's a, it's a combination of sort of long-term preparation of the project, which yeah. mostly includes choosing repertoire that I'm comfortable with. Yeah. And that's very important. And um, yeah, really, really having stuff that, that I know 
I'm, I'm comfortable with conducting and I know that I can make music with and I can sort of show something of, of who I am as a conductor. Mm. Um, and then when it, when it comes down to it, ideally I would, and that's something that I am, uh, I, I am learning sort of on how to, how to deal with sort of the amount of weeks in the season and the amount of time in between, which is very, very scarce. So um, I have been trying to develop some kind of uh, routine of trying to cleanse mm. my head of one repertoire of one week and yes. switch to the other quickly. Um, and I, at the end of the, of the day, I basically have a bunch of, I think, pretty typical like mental exercises that include breathing, a little bit of a meditation, yeah. and uh, starting to practice a positive self-talk, which was uh, a very foreign concept to me for most of my life. Mm. And yeah, something that is too, new to me, that, and I, I cannot believe that I'm really coming to, coming to, in that, to it now, is the fact that uh, this brilliant realization that not every single thought that comes to my mind is uh, a correct thought, a thought that would, you know, represent the reality or be truthful. And so I'm I'm trying to learn how to manage that because it's, it's ultimately if a week will go well or not depends on how how I am mentally there. Am I feeling strong mentally? Am I feeling ready to you know face all the surprises that you mentioned or face? certain adverse uh, elements in the orchestra that sometimes you know might pop up yeah. and am i you know feeling strong enough to experiment and and take risks to in in problem solving so yeah i think that i i, I am really now properly starting to to train do mental training yeah well i, I mean I've read, you know, a couple of books on sports psychology. One very important one called the Chimp Paradox, which um, oh, by Dr. Steve Peters, which is about this chimp that lives in your brain, the, um, that keeps basically putting negative thoughts into your mind, and and then how they spiral out of control. You know, and, and one yeah. of the standard ones I use is when when you know I fly into the place the night before and I arrive and think, I think, what the hell am I doing here? How have I got to this position? What are they going to eat me alive tomorrow? You know, that is to be able to spin it around in my head, but literally 180 degrees and go, no, they invited you. They want you to come. They want you to be here. They can't yeah. wait to work with you. You know, it's it's yeah. the way of shutting the chimp up uh, so that you you know, you you arrive on mon on the Monday morning or whatever it is and w walk out there and just get on with doing what they want you to do. And the reason why they put you in the first place, you know, that you're not full of negativity, yeah. even if it's internal negativity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true. And and I think uh, uh, in, in general for these situations, but for any time that it gets a little much in the season, I think that the, the idea of just feeling grateful because, you know, the, the fact that, that we get to do what we do yeah. and yeah. Uh, I, I really never thought that I would get where I, where I am right now when I was studying. And ultimately, I did really work hard to get here. So I, I am exactly where I wanted to be. <laughs> so I should <laughs> yeah. just be happy about yeah, it and, exactly. and go yeah. with it. No? Yeah. yeah, if you've <laughs> worked hard, you deserve to be there. <laughs> Which brings yeah. me on to France. And in season 21-22, so I'm assuming you've started now, um, yeah. you're, you became music director of Opera Nationale de Lorraine, which is in Nancy in France. But also, you're due to start, I'm assuming this would be maybe in September... To, to be principal guest as uh, the Orchestra Sinfonica de Barcelona. Now, opera houses, um, obviously the time is stretched. Uh, you know, yes. there are different challenges, you know, learning new repertoire and it being an opera of two to four hours long. But also you've got bureaucracy in opera, opera houses. You know, how yeah. bureaucratic is it compared to Germany? How many productions do you intend to do in a season it's a very big question but i want to know yeah. about your new job uh, and and i'm assuming what that will do you know going back one question is it will slow down on the amount of guesting and give you time to just spend six weeks in a place rather than zooming around yeah. the world yeah. um well so i in nc i started in september 2021 yeah so i have just finished last friday my my first season with them and yeah. It's a so it's a house that that has an orchestra that does both the operatic and the symphonic season. Oh, cool! So my responsibilities are basically developing the orchestra, yeah. and I'm mostly doing uh, I'm doing five symphonic weeks with them, 
and then one or two productions a week uh, a season mm. which which amounts to 12 to 14 weeks which yeah. is actually not much it's a very very sh- small contract in a sense and that was kind of by by design and this is part of the reason why I why I decided to do it because I still want to have the, the time to to guest and do my debuts yeah, yeah. it's still the time I, I I I have a lot a lot a long way to go until I I can establish myself and and until I can you know, every every guesting ex- opportunity is such a such a learning mm-hmm. learning situation, and yeah. uh, I I always bring back something new, some new experience, some new approach from 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 other orchestras that I that I work with. Um, so uh, bureaucracy, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, you know it's a it's actually I think I, I somebody told me I should have start read, be, been writing a diary since the beginning of uh, of my contract in in, in France because yeah. it is beyond any imagination that I could have had it's not necessarily the bureaucracy only in the opera but the fact that I'm employed there right now also implies that I am insured in France okay and that's that's a never-ending story right. and <laughs> and I got I have to <laughs> have to give you a tip of a of a show that's uh, I think it's still on Netflix it's um I think called service de la France it's a, it's a French comedy. Yeah. French did it, they, so they shouldn't be offended by it. But it's absolutely hilarious, and I, I sometimes think, wow, it's it's not that far fetched as a, uh, you know, they they don't like exaggerate, <laughs> um, and yeah, it is. And of course, then then in in the opera house, there's a lot of decisions that have to be taken ahead of time, dealing with additions, cuts. Uh, checking who's in your cast because I I don't choose my cast. It's it's mm. it's decided by the um by the casting and artistic director of the house um then communication with the with the stage director and seeing how how that works but uh i really like this aspect of the job as well and the fact that then preparing a production lasts good couple of weeks and you spend this time with this even though it may be long but one piece of music just one artwork and with one team it's just so great you get to live with with this one thing and and properly digest it and properly create something in exchange sort of in in cooperation with the stage which is fascinating mm. Mm. and then there is work with singers i love singers mm. I, I i think they are just wonderful beings and uh, and working with the voice with text and with their personalities which is a big part you know the the psychological aspect of it is is great i really like it I've done two operas and I know I can see the the look on your face how much you enjoy it and yeah you know, when I've done it I've you know I I wasn't solely doing the opera for the six or eight weeks it took to build but I I was going to early piano rehearsals and then I was you know, guesting somewhere and then I would go to another set of mm-hmm. piano rehearsals and solo rehearsals with singers and and to be immersed in one piece of music for that long you know when you when you come back to it again later you know, I was driving somewhere the other day and Jenny Skiki was on the radio and I was listening to it and I thought, I know this score backwards. And it was yeah. ten, <laughs> 10 years ago I conducted it. You know, it just, it yeah. was just funny how, the, you know, something like that, because you've been doing it, you do it for such an intense period, but but a long period, it just washes into you. It's like yeah. some sort of moisturiser that makes it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, and what I really, really like is how, when you work with a with a stage director that also understands music yes. and has looked at the score and respects sort of the musical side of opera, uh, you create an interpretation that is not only yours, that is informed by the reading of the text of the stage director. But at the same time, if you know you have you see something, some gesture, some emotion that is so clearly written just in the music, but maybe it's not in the text. Mm. You can feed that to a stage director if you have a good relationship, and and you know, and that just enhances the link between the pit and the uh, and the and the stage, and it's it's just it's fantastic. A couple of episodes ago, Roy Goodman said the exact opposite. He said, you know, he'd had experiences where he had completely non-musical stage directors and regie, as he said. Yeah. And he said it just made it a nightmare for him because, you know, music I, I, is being ridden over and crushed underneath, you know. I, I, I know of these cases and yeah. I am just really lucky that I haven't haven't met 
haven't been in that situation yet. <laughs> I know it's coming. <laughs> but <laughs> but for day, now, one yeah, day, hopefully, you know, well, not hopefully, one day, maybe, you know, you might avoid it. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. The question I've asked every single conductor. And it's about score preparation. And, you know, the reason why I can ask you and enjoy asking you is because you're at that stage where you're learning so much new repertoire on a year. Do you use a piano or do you just sit at the desk with your inner ear? Do you start big and go small or start on page one and work your way to the end? And for us geeks, and I am one of them, uh, because I set up this podcast, so I must be a conducting geek. Are you a scribbler? Do you like use red, blue, black highlighters or keep your score, you know, virginally white? What's your method, Marta? Um, ideally, I use a piano. Yeah. And I. it's harder when I have to just sit at the desk and, and stare. Yeah. I, I really, that's something that's, that's a blessing and a curse that I got in Vienna. In Vienna, every conductor has to become a pianist. And I got so used to, just feeling the score in my in my hands and working on the color already a little bit in the, the piano. Mm. So I really like to have that opportunity, but I don't, that's a, a stage. You know, yeah. I, I, do, I do that at the beginning to really get the harmonies in my ear. I am not blessed with, a, with an absolute pitch. So I have to put a little bit of work into that. And after that phase is done where I know the score, then I'm just, you know, running it in my head until it's 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 well settled and I have all my decisions and all my sort of uh, road road signs of, of, mm. of where the where the story is going uh, until that is settled that was the first part of the question the second part of the question ah, if I go from the detail to yeah. which which direction I rather go from from big picture I'm especially yeah, especially with anything that is uh, fairly classical still, you know, until yeah. the beginning of where, where you can recognize a clear form and uh, support yourself with with harmony. And you say, yeah, so these are these are my sections. That's you know, development, exposition, da, da, da. And then from there, I, I go slowly into detail. And actually, usually the instrumentation is the last thing that I'm mm. looking at. And by the time I'm learning the instrumentation, I have looked through the, the piece so many times that it's somehow there in my head anyway. Yeah. And the geeky question, I write <laughs> a lot. My yeah. scores are, I have a whole system of colors and uh, little signs for every instrument group. And I do dynamics. I write harmonies all over the place. And then I write words, inspirations, doodles, and then my scores always come with me and are closed because otherwise it can be embarrassing for <laughs> musicians to, to get into my thought process. Um, yeah, my, my scores are really become really messy over time. But they become like old friends. You know, that's the point. Yeah. I'm, I'm start rehearsing a program tomorrow, which is frankly mad. Um, but I've performed two of the three pieces before and rehearsed the third one. You know, Lutoslavsky Concerto for Orchestra, Raps, cool. rap, uh, first piece, uh, Rhapsody on the theme of Paganini, followed by the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. I start oh, rehearsing it to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what everybody says. Oh, my God, you don't want it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which idiot chose that program? It was me. Um, but, but, you know, all of those scores have lived on the shelves behind me since I did them, I, you know, and learned them the first time. You know, I flicked through... I've been flicking through them for the last week or so. Just and I look, open them, and think, "Oh God, yes, of course, yeah." And yeah. all it's all there, all of yeah. the stuff, all of the research I've done online, certain recordings. And you go, "Why has he yeah. done that so slowly?" Whatever. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I would hate to lose any of them, having done all the work. Um, whereas, weirdly, if you know, you list, dip in and out of the the previous hundred or so episodes, there are some people who would rather just have a new score every time they conduct a piece, even if they've done <laughs> it ten times before. You know, I couldn't live like that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I have some of the scores that I would like to start fresh, especially yes. the ones that I that I learned very early on because I I really wrote some nonsense in there and <laughs> or I have struggled with it and I would like to you know start clean and see how much of the things that I wrote the first time are still true that I would yes. write them again, mm. you know from from my head. Um, yeah. Well, I've yeah, recently but a, but a clean score I, is yeah. yeah exactly. I've recently started <laughs> doing that because. You know, I've been conducting a little bit longer than you, and some of those scores now are too small for my eyes, or they're just too battered and bruised, and 
uh, and and that's why I've bought new ones. And of course, you transfer across the stuff from the old ones. And, and often, I'm thinking, I don't need to write that in anymore. Or I don't need to yeah. write that cue in anymore. You're just being you're just being over fussy, you know. Um, yeah. And and, and uh, yeah, the second time round, you use less pencil lead, but yeah. But still, I want those things in there because I still need them to. I want yeah. you know, but they pop off the page, and I know that I it helps me retain this stuff in my head. Yeah, I also also have have made this experience of um, if I have more time, like sort of optimal amount of time to to learn a score, and I don't go straight into marking it, mm. but I I sort of am patient enough to to look and look and sort of choose my priorities then i mark a bit less mm. and when i mark something it's usually it's like a as if i was writing it in my in my head you know that the, yes. the act of writing something it's sort of writing it in my memory but i don't just you know do an automatic every single entrance every single blah, blah, blah. but it's very specific only the things that need reinforcement mm. Mm. I totally agree <laughs> i'm exactly Great. the same <laughs> <laughs> nice Dear listener, please don't reach for that little button that advances this episode on by 30 seconds just because you know I'm about to talk about my Patreon page. Because over recent months my Patreon page has expanded and is quickly becoming a great place for conductors and lovers of conducting to hang out. There's over 20 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers as well as over 20 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from trips when I guest conduct, I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for non-string playing conductors. Did you know that you can even have conducting lessons from myself? All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, and from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Marta Gardalinska. Marta, every single one of the previous interviews have finished with the same 10 questions, so here they are. And I start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sounds of nature. I really like the sound of uh, wind in the fields and sort of how space sounds, where it's open and wide. Mm. What I hate is uh, distorted guitar and growling. <laughs> I It makes me very, very nervous. Mm. I marked up a score. Yeah, I was looking at a score yesterday for a, a project I'm doing with the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra in Cologne in two weeks' time. And it just said in the in the electric guitar part, um, you know, distorted sound. And I looked at it and thought, oh, no. I'm just, I have to, sh- I have to sh- <laughs> shut my ears at that moment. Um, I didn't ask earlier on, are you, were you born or grew, brought up in this countryside or in a town, in the city? Uh, in the city, in Warsaw. Yeah. But, but sort of our way of spending free time was always uh, in nature, camping, hiking. And and I just, just adore it. Yeah, it's a very big, big part, important part for me of, of life. Well, it's a wonderful link into question three. Thank you. It's almost like you're <laughs> reading my mind. And question three, as everybody will know, is if you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, hiking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but some really cool place that would involve both a little bit of mountains and a little bit of swimming. Yeah. And and probably just sleep somewhere in a tent or in a cabin far away from civilization. Hmm quiet and and you know and with people with my people family and friends Mm. chatting yeah i i i've been to the area where you live in vienna and but also uh i was lucky enough to go on tour to zakopane in which is you know that's the sort of place i could imagine you know there are plenty of log cabins in up in the hills above zakopane and and (laughs) it would be a wonderful place to just wander along there for a, a few days and Pitching your tent or in your log cabin? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Maybe Zakopane has become extremely crowded. That's really popular now. But um, maybe Beskid is the other, other little sm- smaller mountains in, in Poland that are yeah. much more, uh, you know, deserted in a sense. I, yes. That's what I would like to still discover. Question four. 
who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Uh, well, I have a couple, of course. Yes. I've got uh, Carlos Kleiber hmm. for, you know, the finesse and, um, and the musicality, but also I kind of like the fact that he was so freaked out before going on stage and so nervous because that reassures me. Yes. Um, so knowing that, <laughs> that he was famously, you know, almost fainting before going on stage, I'm like, oh, whew, thank God. Um, then uh, there's Claudia Bado, who is absolutely a, a, a god. Yeah. And I have, well, I don't know if it's, it's not that recently, but a couple, couple of years ago, I have discovered Knappertsbusch. Oh. And I just, I was absolutely amazed at, um, there are some, some videos of him conducting on, on YouTube and he's barely doing anything. He's barely moving and the intensity yeah, so I I am just fascinated at how how little you can you can do or he could do. Yeah. Also at a very advanced age, maybe maybe that's connected. But um, you know, every it it seems like that that's the less he would do, the more the orchestra would give, and mm. this this feeling of being sort of hanging in time and just having the the, the music stretched all around you is it's it's incredible. And, 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 you know, and the rubato and the freedom that the, from the freedoms that they were taking and how tasteful it would always stay. It's, it's one of those ideals. I think that, that it's really worth to look, look, look back a little bit. Yeah. How, how uh, courageous the, the musicians used to be. It was much less square, I think, than, than many things that we, we are doing right now. Mm. Less formalized, less trying to be, you know, yeah. middle of the road. Yeah, may not surprise May not surprise you to know that Abado appears frequently. Yeah. Uh, Kleiber appears about once every one and a half episodes. He's he is by far and away the most popular choice. To, yeah, in this I, I, I yeah. kind of felt silly saying that. Because yeah, but, I, <laughs> but why not? All it's doing yeah. is reendorsing how all of the other conductors think. Do you know what? Kleiber is number one. God, you know, we just keep yeah. looking. Everybody looks <laughs> up at him. Knappers Bush, I'm sure, has appeared once or twice before. And again, you reminded me to go and look at these YouTube videos, which I will, because, you know, conductors are geeks and we like to <laughs> watch, you know, people yeah. from the past and just look at them and think, how are you, get, how are you getting that sound? What are you doing? Yeah. You know, uh, was it the rehearsal process or, you know, is it your relationship with the orchestra? And just look at the technicalities of how it's done. I, I'm fascinated. So I will go and watch those. Yeah, there is a very, there's a great Siegfried Edel with him. Yeah. And with, with Kleiber, you know, I was... Um, like my fascination with him, I, I started, of course, completely in love. And it was also important for me to, to at some point, I don't know who said that, but somebody sort of revealed a little bit that those videos of him, especially with Vienna Phil, that are so perfect. And that seems like he is, you know, a wizard, uh, you know, creating every single rubato and trill and stuff out of, out of thin air. It was rehearsed. Mm. And how? Mm. Like he would spend hours on on getting it so you know fine tuned. That's right, and and that's really important to know that you you can get the same you know baton technique as as he has, and it will not work with another yeah. orchestra if you don't you know make it work in rehearsal first. Absolutely. Now I I wonder whether your answers uh, are quite as interesting, like Nappert's Bush for question five. A question that some conductors hate answering and others don't mind at all. Who would be your favourite current conductor or conductors? Yeah, that's it's a tough question because there's there are a lot and well, they're all alive and it just feels like you should be <laughs> careful what you say. Um, but I thought I decided to stick with three. Yeah. That uh, without thinking very hard about it, um, I would say Sir Simon Rattle. Mm. I love his approach. Myung uh, Won Chun completely different but uh, i am absolutely fascinated and francois xavier rot oh, rot i think yeah. i'm overdoing that yeah. um they are yeah each each i think completely different and um you know more or, or less experimental but but absolutely absolutely great some inspiring in in their own way well yet again you've been like the answers to question four, you've picked somebody who's appeared quite a lot recently, Francois Xavier Rott. I mean, he, his episode, I interviewed him only three or four episodes ago, but his name is appearing more and more often. You've picked Simon Rattle, who's probably the most picked answer of anybody over the hundred or so episodes. 
And you've picked Myun Won Chung, who nobody has mentioned before. <gasps> yeah. Oh. Um, That's special, I, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've watched him conduct, and I've been, always been fascinated by what he does. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and somehow when he, when he does French music, it's just mesmerizing. Mm. Just you can't stop, can't stop listening, and you know the, the colors and the finesse and the, the lightness. It's it's brilliant. Question six: What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, well, in the in a couple of different categories, I have um, in the emotionally difficult one, I mm. have Tchaikovsky Fourth. Yes, which uh, I had a. a, a face pretty early on in my studies where I was absolutely obsessed with the piece and somehow it made it's I I created a pretty quite personal interpretation of it and it stayed so every time that I do it like afterwards I really feel emotionally drained mm. and uh, yeah it's and and at the same time it makes it difficult to rehearse it because I will not it's not about me pouring my soul out there the first movement is just technically hard to yeah. keep it together and get the you know the the, the um, tempo to, and and the and the relations to what they are supposed to be so in a sense you you are working with a mother that is that is very close to your heart but you have to sort of make it technical at some point yeah so that's that's very difficult uh, for the same reason i you just also re- re- reminded me of one uh, one piece, uh, Chopin's first piano concerto. Oh, I was yeah. terrified of conducting it for the first time because I did have a phase in my life where it, but it was just, the fir- I couldn't go through listening of like the first three minutes of the first movement without breaking down into tears, you know, just being an emigrant, you know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> from Poland and, you know, my, my Slavic soul was, just couldn't take it. So, and I did have a re- recently an, an experience, uh, I was doing it with uh, Shimon Nering and in thankfully in the rehearsal in the second movement I was like I won't stop now but I'm definitely getting teary-eyed I hope nobody's looking because (laughs) that's quite embarrassing um yeah so that's it's it's those are beautiful experiences but but difficult Mm. then technically uh there is a piece by Donatoni called Arpege it's a small small ensemble I think seven instruments from what I remember and it's it's just full of tempo changes that just have a metronome and there's no relation and the the music only works if you are spot on the uh, metronome mark down to you know one so i literally had to spend hours and hours with the metronome training myself you know muscle memory and everything to get it to work otherwise because it has nothing to do with you know sort of logical phrase proportion no you have to make yourself be a clockwork Mm. That was hard. Then the scariest score that I've seen is Ives Four. Yes, it's madness. Yeah, but yeah. I, I was I was luckily a second conductor in it, so you know, ninety percent <laughs> of the problems were not not on me. Uh, and I think the most challenging thing in terms of a whole big big piece was the Zemlinski, the Altamgrigge that I did a couple of years ago, because it's you know it's it's intense uh, writing, and at the same time it wasn't performed much, so. Um, there are different ver- versions of cuts, and I, I was going through manuscripts and and all of that to, to to make sense out of it. Yeah, so that in terms of like a big project, that was definitely the Zemlinski. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I have a portable espresso maker. Do you? Oh, yes. Oh, well, I do love a and coffee. Yeah, I I got it as a gift uh, almost two years ago. And it's been life-saving. I'm a proper espresso addict, and I am. That's definitely definitely coming with me always. And is it one of these where you grind as well? Um, no, actually, it's it's just a you, you pump. Yeah. It's a bit of a workout because it actually gives a gives you a proper espresso with a proper crema. So you really have to work for it mm-hmm. to create the the right amount of uh, pressure. And it has two options uh, of sort of of the 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 last attachment attachment either you put ground coffee in it so if you want you can have also your grinder with you I, i'm not <laughs> advanced <laughs> um or you it, there's a different attachment for capsules ah. 
So actually I switched to that. Of course, it's less ecological, but um, if I go just for a couple of days, taking a bag of coffee with me, it's just uh, a little bit, uh, you know, cumbersome. So you just, you know, put a capsule in and it works better than an espresso machine. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant answer. I might have to buy one. Number eight. Should I tell you the brand? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> wait, uh, wait until we finished. Yeah. yeah. No, no advertising. I don't you know. Uh, All right. not, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, just a real or fantasy number eight whatever you like if you want us all to wear a polish football kit as concert dress whatever you want uh, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor uh, i would stretch the time i would always always have this um uh, this crazy crazy amount of time to prepare and to do like a whole research study about every single piece that i'm doing i remember when i was uh, I was still in, in Warsaw where I saw this documentary on, on how um, John Elliott Gardiner was preparing to, to do the Vespers, Monteverdi mm. Vespers. He went to Venice, he went everywhere and, and you know, he, he saw everything. And, and then I had my first project uh, already in Vienna, but it was a project with, a, with an orchestra in Poland. I was doing Pini di Roma. And I took a couple of friends and then we went for five days to Roma to look at the Pini, which was completely irrelevant for the piece. But um, if I could live my life like this, Mm. that would be great sort of live every single piece that i'm doing oh i agree wouldn't it be nice to have the time to you know read every single word there is on you know shostakovich's yeah. time in the 1930s before you did the fourth or the fifth or symphonies yeah. you know or lady Macbeth or you know anything yeah. like that yeah, but we just don't well, you you grab as much as you can in the time you've got and yeah. And hope you know uh, during your hobby time or on your holiday, you might read an auto, uh, a, you know, a biography of a composer or some research. But yeah, you yeah. you get as much as you can, but you, you yeah. just can't get it all. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's just not not enough time. <laughs> Number nine again, real or fantasy? What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, I would like to uh, try to be an osteopath. Mm. It used to be a physiotherapist, but now I got really fascinated with osteopathy and I think it's like all encompassing. And I think those people do miracles and uh, it's just fascinating how our bodies work and how mm. much we can fix and change and, and, you know, revel in. So that's one option. And then I would like to see how it is to be a waitress. <laughs> I, I, it's I, I have to say that I never really had a, a like a summer job yeah. of, and I, I wish I did yeah. just you know a, a completely completely different thing well <laughs> I was never a waiter but I did before I went to music college I worked at McDonald's and did a sort of menial tasking thing like that I would say, you know, having then gone on to become a professional violinist and a conductor, I think you'd last about three hours. You'd probably hate it uh, <laughs> as a waitress. What I will say is you're the first person to, to choose osteopathy. And as somebody who's seen an osteopath on a regular basis, honestly, more often when I was a violinist than now as a conductor, because my back is freer. I'm not locked like I was as a violinist. So I actually feel that conducting is better for me than, than playing the uh, violin. But having yeah. been, they are miracle workers. And if you go to the right ones who do research and they know about your back and how you know, yeah. it, things are linked, like tennis elbow is often a problem yeah. with your neck. It's got nothing to do with your elbow at all. Exactly. Yeah. What a brilliant choice. Absolutely brilliant. I, I, I love that. And it is true that as conductors, we are, I think we have no excuses to have real problems. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. But, but yeah, we do still. But um, yeah. yeah. But it, it's, it is avoidable. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, Marta, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I have two options. One more possible and one less possible. Oh, good. I like two options. This is good. <laughs> uh, the one that's less possible would be um, pierogi ruske made by my grandma, but she has passed already. So um that's that wouldn't be an option but that's definitely the best thing i have ever eaten in my life yeah, I, yeah. I, I miss them <laughs> remind me what the, remind me what they are i know that i know the word um, you know pierogi is a dumplings yes and, of course they are yes and the uh, pierogi ruskie funnily they are called in polish russian uh, but they are the most typical <laughs> polish yes. polish dish and they are they have uh potatoes and our white cheese yes inside that's it. yes yeah, yeah. They are divine. Mm, yeah. 
Uh, or I uh, would go to what has become, I oh, know, but that, that's actually, oh, that's sad. Sorry. That, that place also closed in, in pandemic. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the, the, yeah. You know, the, this is yeah. basically the, a fantasy restaurant. So yeah. just get, yeah, if, uh, yeah, wherever so the, you want to go. To my far my f- favorite restaurant in in Warsaw called Zoni for a steak and a vodka based cocktail because they that's their thing mm. and a wine that they would choose for me. Yeah, wow, a steak, uh, Polish vodka, which is by far my favorite vodka of all of them. Um, but actually, your grandmother's dumplings sound also delicious. And <laughs> yeah, possibly in the same meal if we could get them yeah. magically in there, that would be wonderful. <laughs> And wonderful it's been, Marta, to chat with you over the last hour or so. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And I hope that our paths cross again soon and we can sit down over a Polish vodka and have another chat. That would be absolutely lovely. Thank you for having me. It's been really a lot of fun. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with the first Brazilian conductor to appear on the podcast. After studying in Zurich, he returned to his homeland to become resident conductor of the Teatro Sao Paulo for two years and is now enjoying a flourishing international career as a guest conductor. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>